and welcome to the HRW Shift podcast. This month we have a very special episode in store for you, which was recorded as part of our first annual Shift webinar day. This was a celebration of behavioural science hosted by all of us here at HRW Shift. Exploring a wide range of behavioural science topics, from the difference between System 1 and 2, the Mindspace framework, and understanding the COMBI model. And today's episode is adapted from one of the most popular sessions of that day, a live Q&A with four core members of our HRW Shift team. You'll hear from Katie Irving, Ali Dautrick, Rhiannon Phillips, and me, Emma Neville, as we act as behavioural science-informed agony aunts to some of the more pressing questions and business challenges posed to us on the Shift webinar day. For anyone listening in that might be hearing about the Behavioural Science Webinar Day for the first time, feel free to head over to the HRW website to request the full recording or email us at shift at hrwhealthcare.com. So without further ado, let's get into it. So this is our opportunity to take your questions and your business problems live. So for those of you that are maybe not familiar with the term, an agony aunt is a friendly figure who offers consolation and advice, typically in a newspaper column. So people will write letters and say, I've fallen out with my sister, please, can you help me? And they'll offer their advice. So those of you in America might know Dear Abby, or in the UK, there's Dear Deirdre, And we are going to try and replicate the high quality of that advice, but from a behavioral science perspective. So we've asked for questions in advance and we had some wonderful suggestions and challenging questions sent in in advance. So we will start by going through the questions. So the first question that we got through um, comes from a client who said their issue is that they're a new brand in a very satisfied marketplace and they want to know how they can break in. So I'll start in on this on myself, actually, in that we see this kind of challenge a lot. The challenge is often that people are very satisfied in a marketplace. And when you are a new brand, that is an incredibly challenging situation to be in, as anybody who's ever marketed a challenge brand knows. Part of the challenge that kind of sits behind this issue from a behavioral science perspective often is that when people have a lot of opportunity to use the existing brands in the marketplace, they kind of build up a lot of affinity and really start to invest their own identity in their use of that brand. You know, when we do something over time, we not only kind of gain that experience, but we also start to kind of find reasons for why what we're currently doing is the right thing to be doing. So we really kind of build up a lot of emotional affinity with the things that we use often. Like if you think about, you know, a cherished recipe or a a favorite brand of shampoo, we really start to um, invest ourselves. And so when you come in as a new brand, the challenge is not that you're just confronting that product, you're confronting all of the person's ego and and investment and belief about themselves that they might have invested in their experience with that product. So one of the most challenging things about trying to break into a very satisfied marketplace is trying to make the case for your brand without threatening people's identity. So some of the direction that we often suggest for stuff like this is pointing out your similarities to existing things. And again, I know that's not a very 
sexy thing from a marketing perspective to say we're really similar to this brand. We're just different in this way. But psychologically, people tend to prefer things that are similar to the things that they already have. So it can be really useful to kind of, I was using this analogy with a colleague earlier, and I don't think it's perfect, but, you know, build your granny annex on top of someone else's house (laughs) rather than just trying to build a, a separate kind of apartment for yourself. Uh, But you can kind of build on top of what is already there. Another way that can potentially work to try and cut into a marketplace that feels very satisfied is not coming from the manufacturing company directly, but instead pointing out some of the challenges with existing products using the patient voice. So using patient experiences and sometimes the, the drawbacks of existing therapies can be more powerful coming from patients themselves. So you're, again, not saying to the physician, you've done the wrong thing. It's just saying like, these are some challenges that patients have. Maybe a a slight adjustment can help to address some of those. Don't know if anybody else on the 15 has anything else to add before we tackle the next question. I have nothing substantial to add, but I think that's a great analogy, (laughs) building an attic on top of someone else's house. And I like it because I would be much more comfortable to just go another level, another floor on top of my house rather than enter a new house entirely. So I think it captures the spirit of keeping people feeling like they're in a comfort zone, but stretching that comfort zone slightly rather than trying to throw them into a new open waters. Yeah, I think you're right, Emma. And the only thing I'd add too is it is, you think about too, all that time and resources still going on that analogy that got invested in building that foundation and all of that. And you you can kind of think of, okay, there is an advantage here, especially if it was a pioneering therapy area and those sorts of things where there's a lot of work that's already been done that you can definitely capitalize and leverage. So you can really spend your time and your resources promoting, you know, what are those unique benefits of your product? It could be looked at in a positive light or glasses half full type of way. Great. The next question that came in was from a client who is designing a patient support program and wants to know some things that they should consider. I love this question. Um, Although my initial response is where where can you begin? There's so much (laughs) um, to consider when it comes to thinking about patient psychology. But I think there are two things that really stand out for me. The first thing that I would encourage is to really appreciate the impact that emotional intensity or emotional stress can have on our ability to absorb new information or think about complex ideas. What behavioral science research has really shown us is that our cognitive capabilities, they take a nosedive when we're in heightened emotional states. So if you imagine that you've just had you know, a really big argument with a partner and you're really worked up, when you're in that kind of fight or flight moment, that is not a good time for someone to come and like tell you how to file your taxes or give you information about a pension scheme. It doesn't matter how important that information is for your life. It's unlikely that you're going to absorb it, let alone remember it later down the line. But if you think about what patients are asked to do, it's often precisely that kind of scenario. They might be given a really life-changing medical diagnosis. That's the emotional equivalent of being hit by a bus in terms of the fight or flight response. But it's precisely that moment when they're given lots of new complicated information, often delivered in lots of jargon that they might not understand. And they're asked to take that all on board and remember everything that they're hearing in that moment. So a key thing that I would encourage people 
who are able to create some patient support programs is to really consider what the emotional state of the patient is along their pathway. What knowledge are you assuming that they can remember from those early moments where they were delivered information in that heightened emotional state? How does the tone of your communications address their emotional reality? There's a lot to think about when it comes to that interplay between emotion and cognition. So that's the first thing. The other important behavioral bias that really came to mind for me with this question is the ostrich effect. It's one of my most favorite behavioral biases, and it's our tendency to avoid seeking even very important information if we fear that that information might be scary or unpleasant to hear. So we have a tendency in those moments to bury our heads in the sand, which is where the ostrich name comes from. So this is the bias that stops me you know, checking my bank balance when I know that I've been overspending a bit that month. I prefer to bury my head in the sand. But what this means for patient support programs is that although the information or support you're delivering might you know, really be needed and really be useful and beneficial, you may still need to be very proactive in um, engaging patients. They're not assuming that the patient will necessarily be on the lookout for that information um, because there might be subconscious barriers that are leading patients to bury their heads in the sand. So I guess my overall takeaway for the person that asked this question is to avoid falling into the trap of thinking that patients will act like rational robots. There are very strong emotional and psychological realities that patients are dealing with um, that mean that they might behave in seemingly contradictory or unexpected ways. And in that same vein, the kind of support needs that go with that often go well beyond just the provision of information. So quite a long answer, but those were the things that came to mind for me. I don't know if anyone else had any thoughts on the panel. I love that, Emma, and I think we've talked a lot about it amongst ourselves in the SHIFT team about um, the challenges of patient empowerment. And I know uh, this is a, uh, another kind of passion of yours, Emma, but that there's often this assumption that if you kind of come at patients with this, you're a champion of your own destiny and feel empowered and you know, which is lovely and so encouraging, but it's, it's not the mindset of every patient and certainly not in those moments when they're getting difficult news and adjusting to a new identity and a diagnosis and all of the psychological realities of that moment are so antithetical for a lot of people to this idea of being really empowered. And so I think it's such an important consideration and one that not enough companies often really understand when they design support. Yeah, I was just going to chime in on that just to kind of add to Emma's analogy of being hit by a bus there. When you receive that kind of diagnosis of you have cancer or you have a serious, significant life-changing illness, that is a massively emotionally charged uh, experience and that will likely activate that kind of fear response. And when that happens, the hippocampus and the amygdala, so those fear centers of the brain, those most basic primal instincts are the part that are acting and responding really energetically to that. And your prefrontal cortex, so this kind of brainy bit at the front here, which processes things like short term memory, attention focusing, planning for the future, emotion and impulse control, all of that goes offline. So in that moment, that patient literally 
doesn't have the psychological resource. So working out a way to kind of ease that information to them over a longer longer period of time is is really critical, I think. Absolutely. One of the studies that I read recently that's really struck me, and I haven't been able to forget the statistic that came out of it, um, is that in studies of how much information is remembered in those appointments where people receive a diagnosis, it was found that 60 to 80% of information delivered in that moment is forgotten. So to put it in another way, in the best case scenario, only 40% of information delivered in that appointment is actually remembered later down the line. And more likely, it's closer to 20%. So it, for me, that was a really important figure to hold on to in trying to manage expectations for what you're really asking of patients when you ask them to empower themselves. It, it's a lot more than just providing people with information and assuming that they'll be able to memorize that and feel capable of pushing back or advocating for themselves. Yeah. And I think Emma, that study in particular raises another really good point and important consideration is, you know, the delivery of this information to patients. So not only is it just about patient empowerment and tools, but it's thinking about healthcare professionals as these gatekeepers, the initial pieces of introduction, and really thinking about, you know, a physician, especially will specialize in this area, really know this stuff. They'll have a degree of cursive knowledge where it's really hard for them to boil down and distill information. And so there's so much that can be done from our client's perspective and communications to really support physicians and help them in that way. Um, I, there's one particular area in oncology that always strikes me or reminds me where patients are faced with a diagnosis and initially and immediately they're told by their physicians that, oh, don't worry, you have the good cancer. And so that whole idea of a, a good cancer is this tension in oxymoron. I think, Rhiannon and Emma, as you're saying, of you know, cancer brings a lot of social implications and associations. So to be told it's good and cancer in the same moment is just so much to unpack and there's so much that can be done to help HCPs better deliver the news and information and help patients process in a way that's more effective. Yeah, well said. So the next question that we had was someone is an established brand and wants to know how to use behavioral science to protect their position. So almost like the opposite of our first question about how do you protect an established brand? Yeah, definitely. And that's that's exactly what I was thinking, Katie. I, I really like this one, and especially because of the counterpart with a lot of the pieces that you've already talked about in that first question that was raised. And I think really the, the nice thing in this question is that there's so much that can be leveraged from being, you know, that first to market, that familiar and that trusted option that can be done to really retain share and keep customers happy and keep coming back. Um, so first and foremost, you can really think about elements from, again, the social side, just the social proof, the readily available examples that come to people's mind of success of the past and building on those wins um, and tap into those personal memories that people have that can be really powerful um, and keep them coming back. They can visualize that whole process. It's very comfortable, um, very easy to imagine doing it or imagine having a patient go through that process when they've seen it completed and successful in the past. And I also think there's a lot that can be done with language that's used in this space too. So um, I know we were working on one product that was in the pediatric space. And one of our recommendations in this area too is saying, you know, mom's most trusted or just like your parents gave you um, kind of in this over-the-counter medication that I think really provides those nods back to your family comfort home and keeps people coming back to a particular brand or product. 
And so ultimately, I do think too, as, as Katie mentioned, with using different patient and anecdotes or, or the first piece, but like really anything you can do to keep, you know, bringing home that familiarity piece, that trust and that emotional attachment that people build after going through something um, can really play a role and have an impact. I also like using the example in more of the consumer realm of like Apple products. I think Apple does a really good job of this. Um, the whole I family and just, you know, every product comes out, it already has that familiarity with another lowercase I product. I know my iPhone gets me with, you know, it's connected to my MacBook and my iPad and everything's easy and seamless. And I'm sure if I Googled it and did actual research, there'd be a much more cost-effective phone option. Um, but I just keep going back to my blue bubble and iPhone. So I don't know if anyone else has um, comments on this one to add. I think just just slightly kind of building on what you were saying as well, Allie, that like the challenge again psychologically or the, the benefit in this case is that any departure from something that's more familiar feels like a risk. So in addition to really stoking the fires of their affection for the brand and their experience and the number of uses and all the popularity data is you can also talk about the certainty and the predictability that, again, when you have more experience with the brand, sometimes it doesn't mean that it is more certain or more predictable. It's just that you've used it enough that you are better able to kind of predict how it might respond, which people really value is kind of consistency and predictability and the things that we're more familiar with feel more predictable, even if they're not as predictable, we're just more familiar. Yeah, and I think to build on that part of what is so comfortable about that familiarity is the knowledge that others are doing the same thing as you. So audience members who kindly attended the Mindspace webinar will be familiar with the power of social norms in determining our behavior. Um, and I mentioned on the Q&A of that session that I do think that the power of social norms is probably the most underestimated of all of the nudges, at least in the Mindspace framework, I've found in my experience that we can be very, very blind to the way that the behavior of others around us is affecting us. Um, it reminds me of my favorite behavioral science joke, which admittedly is not very funny, but I will tell it to, to you all now, um, which is that a fish swims into a bar. This joke is set underwater. And the fish bartender says, hey, fish, how's the water? And the other fish responds, what water? <laughs> the idea of the joke is that um, culture or social setting is to humans what water is to fish. It's all around us, but we can fail to see it unless it's pointed out to us. So what I liked about the example you gave, Ali, about like mum's favorite brand or used by thousands worldwide, like these small linguistic frames can really harness that social momentum towards your brand. And I think it's a really neat and powerful way to, to use human psychology. Yeah, just, just one final thought chiming in on the power of social norms and how we're oblivious to it. Um, just a, a brief question to the audience. Uh, have you ever found that you've picked up a phrase or a, an expression or um, a mannerism or a gesture and you don't know where you've got it from and then you suddenly realise it's <clears throat> your friend or your mum or your colleague? And that's because we're, we're just so oblivious to how much that environment is continuously influencing us, um, particularly people that we admire. Um, you can often see this in uh, in 
meetings, for instance, where people mirror body language or expressions or, you know, hold their head in a similar way. And it's that connection, that rapport, not necessarily aware of it. It's just that information that is constantly being flooded and attuned to unconsciously. Brilliant. So our next question uh, comes from someone who's got a second to market brand in a new class. So want to know about some of the advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, I really like this one because it's definitely a tricky question and something that many will have uh, grappled with in some way, shape or form. And I suppose um, we'd start by taking the obvious. So we'll go with the disadvantages first, being second, because that's the primary thing in front of our minds. And so one of the disadvantages would be the primacy effect. So in a list of things or sequences of events, the things which appear first are more distinctive in our memories. Um, So if you ever played uh, one of the games where you have 20 objects lined out in front of you and you have to remember them all, the one that you see first is really clear and easy to remember and the ones in the middle get a bit murkier. And so here being first to market obviously gives that distinct advantage of being memorable, which would encourage use. And another one would be the path of least resistance. So Kahneman, uh, one of the founding fathers of behavioral science said that uh, humans are to thinking as cats are to water. That is, we can do it, we just don't like to. People like to do what's easy and the path of least resistance encourages people to take the easiest route, satisfactory outcome. And so here, once a product has been used once, repeated use is easier than trying a new unknown product because not necessarily the case that it's better, but really that repeating a behavior requires less mental effort than engaging in a new one and considering the different parameters there. So those are two of the more prominent disadvantages, but there are also a great number of advantages. So the first one that comes to mind is about frame of reference. So when we evaluate things, it's based on our pre-existing set of knowledge and beliefs that we have. So when we assess something new, our first step is to make sense of it in relation to something else. And so the first to market product will have had to invest a lot of resource in establishing that groundwork to raise the awareness of the product and its function and why it's desirable. And so being second to market, you can actually leverage that by leaning into the work that they've done, um, raising awareness uh, while being able to focus on the aspects that are your distinct benefits, so the things that set you apart. And there's also the nice synergy with some of the things you were saying earlier, Katie, about drawing on that analogy of of building a house and a granny granny annex, like you're kind of drawing on their foundations there. So I like that very much. And also satisficing is another thing which I think comes into play here. So satisficing is a bias, but it is a blend of the two words satisfy, uh, meaning to meet a need and suffice, which obviously means adequate, good enough. And so satisficing is our tendency to make do with something provided we're not actively unhappy or dissatisfied with it. And we also know that the most effective time to create 
behavior change is when another significant change is already underway. And so as this is a new class, this first to market product is priming HCPs with the knowledge that there is a big change in the treatment landscape taking place. And so that means that, again, by being second to market, you can kind of piggyback off that and encourage HCPs to consider areas where they might be satisficing, drawing attention to that. And that includes where they might be satisficing with that first to market product. So leveraging that in, in positioning can be particularly impactful. That was great, Rhiannon, and I'm glad that building a house on top of another house thing is resonating for all of us. Um, but I'm conscious of the time, so we'll do some speed rounds now. The next couple that fly up, we'll answer them more quickly. And the next question comes from someone who said, I've heard a lot about EEG and eye tracking as ways to measure brain waves. Do you use these? So um, I'll take this one because this is a particular bugbear of mine, because a lot of times we go to these like behavioral science conferences and market research Often when they say behavioral science, they mean something like an EEG or an eye tracking or a facial coding. Um, and EEG is an electroencephalogram. So it's, it's electrodes placed on the surface of the skull to try and detect electricity underneath the cranium so that you can see what regions of the brain are activated. So there's a massive body of evidence from multiple meta-analyses that suggests that physiological measurement cannot diagnose or predict emotion. So we're not measuring people's emotions when we use those types of technologies. And there's very little validation, particularly for the commercial dry EEG headsets. We've done a lot of self-funded research into these. We've also done research into eye tracking, which can be useful in looking at where the gaze goes, but it doesn't tell you anything about the psychology. And same with um, facial coding, which there's very little evidence that suggests that that's an accurate measure of emotion. And even if it were, a lot of the commercial measures are just not very effective at using it. So no um, is the answer. We do, um, we do recognize that the importance of kind of non-conscious and unspoken responses. So we're constantly looking at stuff in this field. And we do see, again, value in combining it with other approaches, but it's not to measure brainwaves or predict or diagnose emotion. Right. The next one is what behavioral science advice do you use most yourself? I'd be happy to take this one as I know Katie and I were discussing that the other day, um, that I've been performing small habit experiments on myself to keep myself entertained during this latest lockdown. Um, one of the behavior change techniques that I've been using is called temptation bundling. So the concept of temptation bundling is if you combine something you don't really want to do, maybe cleaning your bathroom, going on a jog with something that you really love to do, like listening to your favorite music or listening to a really great podcast. If you perform those behaviors at the same time, you can kind of trick your brain into thinking that you enjoy <laughs> all of it together. So one thing that I've been doing is the Couch to 5K app, which encourages people to increase their fitness and be able to run a 5K by the end of it. So I've been combining playing my favorite um, pop album while going on a jog, and that's been working really well for me. Another happy coincidence is that my favorite podcast comes out on Sundays. So I'll put that on while I'm doing a big kind of clean of the house so I can bundle those two behaviors together and trick myself just in the right way to get myself to perform that behavior. Another small behavior change tactic that we often recommend to try and reduce the scale of what you're asking people to do. 
is to ask people not to kind of wholesale take on um, a new habit, but to ask them just to try it out for a week, try it out for two weeks, and asking people to perform a trial of a behavior rather than fully take it on um, can often be a lot more successful. So I've been doing little trials of new habits. Like most recently, I've started doing a walking commute around my block in the mornings just to take advantage of the sunshine. I'd thought about doing that idea for a really long time, but it felt like a big commitment to be like, okay, this is who I am now. I'm going to completely change my behavior. So instead, I told myself, well, why don't I try it for a week? and see how it goes. As it turns out, that is now a daily habit for me. So those are two small behavior change tricks that I've recently used on myself, and they've both been very successful. Great. I'm conscious of the time. There's also been one question um, in the Q&A from Killian, who says, would you agree that medical professionals think they are not affected by biases? That is a great question, Killian. So thank you for that. I think the short answer is yes. I don't know if anybody would like to the longer form answer. I will just chime in very briefly and say yes, but also so do the rest of us. We all tend to think that we're quite immune to biases, but I promise you, I have bought that second least and second most expensive bottle of wine at a restaurant many a time. (laughs) Yeah, there's something called the bias blind spot where we all are blind to our own biases, even when we can spot them in others. And I think the challenge working in pharma is that often pharma teams sometimes think that HCPs are less subject to biases as well. So their campaigns that are focused on healthcare professionals appeal to their rational brains and don't treat them as humans and leverage the power of emotion as well. Yeah, and there has been some research too that's been done um, to actually look at this in physicians in particular. Um, And it's proven that especially as we're more and more specialized or experts in an area that we're even more susceptible to certain types of biases. So definitely when we're seeing some things at play or some of the case studies we've talked about today, that specialist nature can definitely play a role and make us even a little more blind than we'd like to admit. Great. Well, I think that's all we have time for. So I'll just say thank you all for joining us. It's been a delight to share our first annual celebration of behavioral science with you. And we'll make recordings available after the fact if you'd like to share with your colleagues. If you'd like to hear more from our annual celebration of behavioral science webinar day, you can email us at shift at hrwhealthcare.com to get access to recordings of the day's sessions. That's shift at hrwhealthcare.com. Thank you for listening and see you next month.